Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Sean Saw Jun Kyle. Sean has personal experience of difficulties with food and body image and joins us today to discuss the differences within Western and Asian culture and how this may contribute to the development of difficulties with eating and body image. Hello, Sean. Hello. How are you doing? I'm okay. I'm feeling great. Yeah, good. Good. Not a super long day. Like, you're a lot of hours ahead of me. I've had a very long day, but... (laughs) Uh um, I don't know, just somehow energetic, you know, yeah, you know when you get good. done with a full day of work and then at the end of the day, you're like, okay, this is my me time. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 I always find that actually, I find like I get a tr- like a trough between kind of three to four um, and then like 6 p.m. I'm like, let's go. And you're yeah. like, why did I not have this earlier when I was working? But I guess you could like get yourself hyped for your own stuff instead. Yeah, exactly. I, I think this is, that's because uh, this is my exercise time normally. Mm-hmm. Like I tend to come home from work and then I eat and then I, I work out. And so yeah. it, it's like my body's used to having energy at this time. <laughs> I wondered maybe if we start by, I guess, talking about your personal experience. And then, you know, obviously I know that you've moved from Singapore to the UK and then back. But yeah. if you maybe want to explain that as well, just for the listeners so they can get a kind of understanding of your perspectives and how that shifted okay so I was uh born and raised in Singapore from you know zero to like 20 was I 20 I think when I mm-hmm. went to the UK for the first time and then I was there from the age of 20 to 24 yeah 24 25 so you know growing up in Singapore um I think the we don't talk about mental health, right? Mm. And then suddenly going to the UK where, where there's like, especially in a university setting where there's so much talk about mental health, um, especially spending four years in that system, you start to realise like, oh, maybe I am suffering from something, you know? And, and I think when it really clicked was uh, in my first year, around second term, I was discussing um, uh, eating with a friend who's, who used to do ballet and you know in in the the ballet scene like there's uh quite a few uh i I think it's quite notorious for for not being great for for like you know the development of eating disorders and all that and so she was sharing this with me and that's not an experience i ever had in in singapore you know no one's ever shared um any type of issue um regarding mental health with me in singapore let alone eating disorders and so when when someone finally did share uh, their experience with me that kind of gave me an opportunity and also the courage to share my own experience that's amazing it must how did that feel for somebody to kind of speak about something um like that that you were like whoa I actually think I've maybe experienced this but you know didn't think it was maybe an issue uh, it was it was really cathartic definitely mm-hmm. you know like being able to finally share with someone like <laughs> oh you know, I, I went through something as well and you actually understand it, 
you know, because back back in Singapore, if if no one, like no one had ever opened up to me, so I I wasn't sure if they would understand what I'm going through. Like obviously,、mm-hmm. my friends always knew Sean doesn't eat a lot, and when he does, like he doesn't enjoy it, you know, because I used to force feed myself trying to put on weight because I always thought I was, you know, too skinny and all that.、Mm-hmm. Um, but it was never on on the level of、um, talking about actual body image. And and、um, relating it to eating disorders. So when you say about kind of you know your friends were aware that you didn't eat much and stuff, what what kind of was behind that? You know how how long had that been going on for for you? Um, it's it's really hard to tell.、Um, mm-hmm. I actually came across old videos of myself. Like, I literally found these old digitized videos of me as a baby. And I was stealing my sister's food, so obviously I loved food <laughs> when I was a baby.、Mm-hmm. But I don't have memories of ever like loving, you know, eating like massive amounts.、Mm. Um, all my memories around food were, you know,、uh, oh, how come I can't eat as much as the other person, or being told that I'm not eating enough, or being told that I am skinny, I need to eat more.、Mm. You know, and and I have you know very specific. Incidents still ingrained in my in my mind, you know, of of relatives,、uh, family friends saying, "Oh, you're so skinny. You need to eat more." Or, "Are you ill? Why aren't you eating?"、Um, it's very. It's actually a very common thing in in Singapore, and、um, it's not something I experience as much in the UK. But in Singapore,、um, people tend to comment a lot on your your weight, your body.、Um, Your body size, your body shape,、uh, yeah, how much you're eating, how much you you know they think you should eat,、um, and it's a very normal thing. It's it's a very normalized thing to to talk to talk about, and yeah. So I when you know、um, was it a couple of years ago when there was the whole issue of, about putting calories on menus in the UK?、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like that would never happen in Singapore. Because, really? Yeah, like I think. There's just too little awareness about what such,、um, what that impact could have on people's mental health.、Mm. Because if people don't even have the sense to not say to your face like, "Oh, you're too skinny," or "Oh, you look fat," you've put on weight,、mm. you know, there, there's no way they they come to the realization that you know putting calories next to every single item on the menu could really damage someone's mental health. But then again, it's also my personal experience. I don't want to speak for like my whole country. I have met loads of people as well who have empathized with me and really understood. But like my upbringing doesn't reflect that. Specifically with the calories, is calorie counting? You know, that's a pretty common thing in the UK. You know, using apps to track or calorie count or whatever. Is that something that's quite common in Singapore, or is that just not really a thing either? So I think calorie counting was more of a athletes or bodybuilders or、mm. gym bros kind of thing. The only people I knew who had like the the, the religious MyFitnessPal tracking、um, were my friends who were also tracking for sports or for the gym. Right.、Um, because I grew up in a very like sort of like sports environment. All my best friends at school, we all did sports and we all discuss we all discuss nutrition, how much we need to eat, how much protein, and all that. You know, like when you're 
you know, 14, 15, discovering like, oh, you need to eat this much protein to build muscle. And then mm-hmm. your friend introduces you to my fitness power and you're like, oh, okay. And then you just get so religious about it. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's, um, I would say the main demographic of people tracking. Right. But there is a strong diet culture, I would okay. say. So, um, I think it affects girls more, diet culture. Right. I don't really know too many guys who go on fad diets apart from like keto mm-hmm. but growing up you know my mom would try on like would try loads of different diets and you know like as a kid trying her diet food I was like how could you make yourself eat this but you know she went through like loads of different diets I always think that I mean I think a lot of the time the kind of foods that are produced for a diet or whatever I think you trick your you know people trick their minds into saying this is delicious you know and actually it's it's repulsive um but it's all in the name of in the name of a diet why do you think for boys the keto diet was kind of the only one I don't know I was never attracted to the keto diet I'm a very like carb loving person so I, I was trying to understand it, and I think maybe it's because the keto keto diet is still very um, protein heavy, right? And so you know, like gym bros love their protein, mm-hmm. you know. So I think guys think like, oh, I, I'll eat this much protein, I'll still be able to build muscle, but I'll also lose the fat and I'll get more shredded. Whereas mm-hmm. if you look at the other diets out there, like I don't know, maybe Mediterranean or South Beach, I feel like those are. In the first place, I think those are marketed towards women anyway. It's all about weight loss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas I think guys don't think about diets in terms of weight loss, but more so like the marketing term is different, right? For women, it's weight loss. For men, it's cutting. Mm-hmm. So I think when yeah. you search like best diets for cutting and best diets for weight loss, you're probably going to get different results. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a very strong gendered a- aspect to it, mm. I would say. Kind of similar, I guess, to maybe Western culture in that diet culture very much promotes women to be smaller and men to be more muscular kind of bigger so yeah. would you say that like the kind of, I guess ideal body type is that similar in Singapore to what you noticed in the west or was there a difference there no I think the body type in in Asia is the ideal body type in Asia I think is is quite different mm. um, I think it's generally slimmer so if you look okay. at movie stars, pop stars in, in Asia, um, they're generally very slim and, and like lean, okay. right? For, so for, um, specifically for guys I'm talking about, you rarely see very muscular um, mm. like movie stars and, and um, actors. But I think that's also like genetics, right? Gen- genetically, you know, um, most of my Asian friends, we don't like, we don't have a very like bulky build. We okay. tend to be quite lean. Um, and then for girls as well, um, I feel like in Singapore, the ideal body type, unfortunately, is just skinny. Mm. Like a lot of... So the thing is, it's it's very strange. So among my, my friends and I, we all think, oh, our ideal body type is a little bit curvy. Mm-hmm. But all the girls, when we talk to them, all they want to be is skinny. Hmm. So I feel like we're being sold different body images. That's really interesting, kind of the fact that actually maybe what you find, you know, you and, and your male friends might find more attractive is not what 
they're kind of being sold as you know, this what is what makes you more attractive because I think definitely you know in the west I don't know because when you were just talking then I was trying to think about like what is what is the ideal body type now I and I think maybe in the west it is you know for for women this is like a a lean but muscular physique that's literally kind of impossible to maintain but I don't know if that's maybe what's the most I mean I guess everybody finds different things attractive don't they which is why like an ideal body type for attraction is so difficult because everybody's got their own attraction yeah but I also think body types sometimes are like trends it's like in this decade it's this and in that decade Uh it's that and these people go through like so much to be like imagine you took 10 years to I, I achieve your ideal body type and then 10 years later you're like oh you've got to be skinny again why do I build all this yeah. muscle yeah. Uh-huh. You know? and that's what I was kind of thinking about when I was trying to think about what's the ideal body type now because you know if you look at I don't know like the noughties it was definitely in the west a, a super skinny build um but then yeah. if you think you know the 80s or something it might have been a bit of like a curvier bum or whatever so it it does literally change constantly like you say which I think is what makes it so difficult and I also think that that's how they keep kind of you know diet culture keeps alive because like you said you spent 10 years trying to get somewhere and then realize oh it's actually changed now so you've hit that benchmark you know if you've been aiming for that body type but now you've got to change again so you you know you've got to buy all these new products or you know completely change your life again which means they get even more money this piece of equipment that this fitness influence mm-hmm. is, influence is using because she has the new ideal body type yeah. yeah yeah absolutely when you were younger you mentioned about kind of getting comments about your body and then also force feeding yourself to eat more was that to try and get a certain body type or is that in response to the comments that you had or was it something completely external from both of those it was it was completely external mm-hmm. um so when I was force feeding, that was like quite a specific period in my life. Um, I was um, a national athlete at that time. So I used to do canoeing and dragon boat. Oh, wow. And I was the national age group champion for like, uh, I think throughout my secondary school years. Um, God. So I was training about four to five times a week off season and then 10 times a week during the season. Wow. Um, so it, it would sometimes be um, like a morning gym workout, an afternoon canoeing workout, and then an evening dragon boat workout. Because I would be training for like multiple competitions, like simultaneously mm-hmm. sometimes. Go get my first workout in, go through all my lessons, and then go for like, there, were just, there just wasn't time to finish, you know, mm-hmm. all, all the things I needed to do and get the meals in. So, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'd be like, now I need to drink some olive oil oh wow before I go to bed yeah that's when I was force feeding so it wasn't because I felt like I needed to you know look a certain way it was just because Mm -hmm. I felt like this was the only way to sustain my training yeah but it definitely wasn't healthy um for my relationship with food Mm. because you know I think once I'd stopped canoeing I then took this mentality towards the gym and I was like okay so if I want to build this much muscle or like put on this much weight this quickly 
I now need to eat this much weight, and if I don't eat this much weight, then my training is, my training would go to waste, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I just kept the same mentality for like years, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you get any support with your nutrition when you were doing all of that training? No, none. Wow. And you were how old, did you say? Um, so I think I first started canoeing when I was 13. Then when I really needed to start like force feeding myself was about 14. Wow. What 14 year old is aware of like nutrition? I, I can't, I cannot believe that that is not something, you know, when you're doing it that intensely, three intense workouts a week. And if you were at a super high league as well, that's surely something so obvious that somebody would need support with in order to maintain that, like, you know, that elite level. Well, my coaches would just say, you guys need to make sure you're eating enough to support your training. And that was the extent of my nutritional support and everything else. I was just Googling and going on like internet forums and being like, oh, do I need this supplement? And so I I was like, mom, mom, I need protein powder. I'm not getting enough protein. Yeah. But the thing is, while I was going through this, I was also going through puberty and I started to build a lot of muscle. And I was getting a lot of compliments for it. Mm. So during that period, there was like a lot of positive feedback. And it just kept me thinking like, oh, this, this is good. This is so healthy for me. You know, like force feeding myself is the best thing that I've discovered. Like I can just eat more and I look better. Mm. Yeah. So it took quite some, like, quite some time to untrain that behavior. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um. Yeah, I mean, you said that it like affected your relationship with food. And obviously, you know, we met through the gym and stuff um, and we were doing a lot of powerlifting and stuff like that. So how, how did you did you find that it was different when you came to the UK or did you still feel that sort of drive to, um, you know, keep eating to keep building that muscle? I honestly think up to like second year, I was still um very driven by like a minimum caloric intake Mm. even though i knew um in the past it might have been unhealthy for me i thought i thought i had a healthy approach now because um there wasn't so much force feeding it was just like um you know just i I told myself it was just a target and i was a bit more lax with myself you know i was Mm. like oh if i don't hit it it's okay but I was still like really aiming for it and I would still feel a bit down if I didn't hit that target. Yeah. Um, I think it was only until my third year when I realized how, mi- like I had gotten injured, so I couldn't train for a bit. Mm. And I was just eating like how I would normally want to eat because I wasn't training. I didn't feel the need to be driven by calories anymore. And then I was like, oh wow, like I'm not spending hours a day thinking about food, planning my meals, cooking, and then sitting down and and eating. Like, I just felt like I wasn't using so much brain power on food anymore, and it felt great. Mm -hmm. Um, And then so once I'd recovered from the injury, I was like, I I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. I I enjoy powerlifting. I'm going to train in the powerlifting style, but I'm not going to keep pushing my, my body's limits when it comes to food anymore. So yeah. I, I told myself, like, I needed a complete revamp and, like, 
rethinking of my training philosophy mm. yeah yeah I mean I think that's fantastic that you you've been able to do that and I think having this conversation is so important because often when we think about eating disorders or disordered eating I think we often jump to the calorific restriction or you know not eating enough and not actually thinking about you know for some people it is it's kind of the opposite in that you have a certain number that you kind of need to get to and whatever happens you've you forced yourself to get to that which both ways is sort of you know it's moving away from that intuitive eating that is so important and how, how we should be kind of going about so I'm super glad that you have been able to kind of shift that mindset and now you know eat kind of how how you want to want to be doing um do you think that the sort of move to the UK had a positive impact were there less comments on your body or was it kind of the same or not no impact I think when I moved to the UK um there were fewer comments on my body and also the those few comments I got tended to be quite positive. Mm. Even though I wasn't in the best shape of my life, I found that my friends at uni were really, you know, really nice, really supportive. You know, they were like, oh yeah, you've been going to the gym, I can tell, it's paying off. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was great. And um, one thing I, I, I didn't mention was I, for a while, had a, a lot of issues just eating with people. Mm. It's a... Uh, I, I still do actually. So eating out or eating with strangers, um, it's very difficult for me. I get very anxious because mm -hmm. I'm just worried about what they're going to say. They're going to judge the way I eat. And that was something that I was really worried about when I first um, knew that I was going to, you know, going to fly overseas, go, go to a completely new place, meet completely new people and, and eat in front of them. I was terrified of that. Um, but I made my first meal in the kitchen, I sat down to eat it with everyone around me and I felt zero anxiety and I was like, oh, okay, that, that's good. But obviously like, I was like, no, I need more than this one, one thing, right? Like it could have been a flute. And as I built like, you know, day after day of like not feeling anxious around my friends, I was like, oh, this is, this is fantastic. Because previously, um, I, I used to feel um, like a bit of nausea if I was eating with a group of completely new people. Mm. Um, and I think even so, like even when I was eating with people that I known for years, there would still sometimes be the sense of nausea. But I think um, throughout uni, like I struggled. With the, I, I didn't really struggle with that at all until COVID hit, and then I wasn't eating out anymore. Mm. I was just eating with like by myself or the same few people. And then once we all came out of lockdown and I tried to eat out, it all just came back and I'm still working through it, still trying to you know, feel less anxiety um, when it comes to eating out. But then being back in Singapore, the comments have started to come back, the negative comments have started to come back and it's, oh, wow. it's quite hard. Yeah. Do you think the comments on food, is that why you get that anxiety or is there something else that causes that anxiety when you're eating around other people? It's mainly the comments, but also because um, when I was younger, maybe like six or seven, I didn't have a big appetite and mm. um, there was a lot of pressure from relatives to finish my food, even though I couldn't. Right. 
until I would throw up. Oh wow! Because I was just forcing myself to eat, right? Because、mm-hmm. I, I I had a really small appetite, and well, no, I had a child-sized appetite, <laughs> and they just thought I needed to eat more because I wasn't <laughs> fat. And so I think now I'm quite afraid of throwing up.、Mm. So like I don't dare to let myself eat till I'm full when I'm out. Yeah. It's quite interesting what you just said there. That、um, there's so many comments around body and the food that you eat, and you know, like you said, maybe you've put on weight or you've lost weight or whatever. But then being told that you need to eat more because you're not fat—that seems quite like contradictive to me. I think this is universal. I don't think this is like a, an Asian thing. But okay, my mom really likes. Children. <laughs> okay. Is this is this universal? Because my mom was always complaining that I was too skinny as a child. She wanted me to be fat, like a chubby kid with like the rolls on their arms and the cheeks. And I don't think that's universal. It might、oh. be. It's not、oh, okay. my experience. <laughs> okay.、Um, so yeah, my、um, my family generally. You know, I think the expectation is if you're not chubby as a kid, you're not healthy. Okay. But if you're chubby as an adult, you're not healthy. Wow. Yeah. So I、That's... I don't know what the magic age is where you have to transition. <laughs> yeah. But you have two different body standards that you're being held to. Wow. Yeah. That sounds. Like it would be really difficult to, you know, at that age where you then have to transition, going from eating a lot to, you know, have that chubbier appearance to then not being able to do. That sounds like a real shift in kind of eating habits. I think. Oh well, it definitely is, but I think、um, most people just don't shift and they they just accept that they're a bit larger. Well, okay. I'm talking about my brother right now because he、okay. he was the ideal child, you know, super chubby, super cute, you know, and then now he's an adult, and he's, you know, being teased at the family reunions for being like a bit bigger. The thing is,、mm-hmm. he's not fat. Okay. He is he is a very healthy weight. He's just got a completely different body type to me, and that's why、mm-hmm. he was like bigger as a kid, right? But I, I've spoken to quite a few people about this, and we've decided you can't win when it comes to your your relatives at family reunions. When you were a kid, they'll be like, "Oh, you've grown so tall." As an adult, they'd be like, "You're either oh, you've lost weight, or oh, you've put on weight." Like that's just the thing they say. Yeah, I mean, and I think that definitely is a universal thing. Um, my grandparents, every time I see them, will comment on one thing or another, and it's like, "Yeah, that's super helpful. Thanks for that."、Um, can we move on? But for, you know, for example,、um, for me, if I if my grandparents comment on the way that I look or whatever,、um, I'm now very aware that I don't like that,、um, and I would never do that for somebody else. So, do you think that、um, you know, in Singapore and stuff, is it a generational thing? Has Like our sort of generation moved away from the comments, or is it still very common for our generation to comment on friends or or family's appearances as well? Well, that's a tough one.、Um, 
because okay in school it was very common to comment on people's you know okay. bodies but obviously like kids they're mean they make fun yeah. of other kids so that was more was that more like bullying yeah definitely yeah bullying. yeah okay um now as an adult okay so in my previous office there was a i had a colleague who was a bit larger mm-hmm. and the comments didn't come in the form of like oh you're you're fat you're overweight it was more hey um do you need any like diet advice okay or, you know oh um sean here is a personal trainer you should ask him like for some tips mm-hmm. and i was just sitting there like why do you assume he wants my help he could be perfectly happy mm-hmm. with his body yeah yeah so it's it's the unsolicited you know advice like the the pretense of being nice like oh you know uh-huh. you could try this thing that i tried this crazy yeah. fad diet that i think is amazing <laughs> that worked for a week yeah, it, yeah. i think that's that's quite interesting in the fact that maybe it's not as direct as maybe grandparents and you know you're you've gained weight or you've lost weight or whatever but there's still that underlying um yes noticing that somebody is maybe a different size to you and then like you said trying to offer that advice but trying to do it maybe in a more polite way um whereas i think maybe maybe that's a difference kind of in comparison to the West in that I don't think, I don't know. Maybe people would say, I've tried this thing, maybe you could try. But I hate that, you know, I think that's so awful yeah. to just assume, like you said, that somebody wants to change when actually they could be very happy, um, you know, with their with their figure or whatever. I think how I see the difference is in the West, people don't make certain comments because they understand the repercussions that might Mm -hmm. have on someone's mental health. Okay. In Singapore, I think people don't make these comments anymore because they've been told it's not socially acceptable, but Mm -hmm. maybe the understanding and the awareness for the underlying reasons why you don't make those comments isn't as Mm -hmm. um, obvious to them because the the level of... um, discourse around mental health and especially eating disorders in Singapore it's very different to the UK you know I, I would I would say in, in Singapore if you say I have an eating disorder immediately everyone is just like oh you have anorexia you know there, there's just no awareness for like any other type of mm-hmm. eating disorder and then even even though they can say you know oh you have anorexia like they don't actually really know what it means to have anorexia. Like they just think, oh, you, you know, you don't eat, therefore you're really skinny. Mm. So because there, there is absolutely no, no discourse around it. Um, I went through like my entire education without a single talk on eating disorders. Yeah. Did you have any talks on mental health in general? Yeah, close to exam time, they'd be like, if you're feeling stressed, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Why do you think there is such a lack of kind of the conversation around or the awareness of mental health and, and you know, in particular eating disorders? Honestly, I have, I have no idea mm. because it seems like such an easy thing you could, you know, 
have a campaign about that could greatly in- increase, you know, happiness and public health. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's just a bit of a taboo around, you know, talking about mental health, maybe. And so with so few people talking about it, then there, there aren't that many people to inspire others to share their mm-hmm. stories. And you really do need that snowball effect of people sharing their stories and then it, it becomes a whole movement. But maybe you haven't had that yet. Even with kind of like, you know, the influence of social media and stuff, are people, because I think a lot of the time that can be where people might see, you know, somebody share their mental health journey. Is that still not something that really happens in Singapore or maybe even coming you know, from Western social media? into Singapore, Singaporean, like, social media? Does that not happen? I'm really not sure because, like, it's obviously on my feed a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I I don't have too many friends who open up to me about their mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had a few, and they've just shared with me, like, their experiences um, and the common theme is just a lack of people to open up to. So, you know, even though there might be, you know, social media telling you, like, you know, increasing awareness, um, I think the social media, like, it, it can penetrate certain markets because ultimately it's like, you know, TikTok, Instagram, they have their algorithms. <laughs> and so if you're not someone who is in any way concerned about mental health, you're not going to get these, these yeah. clips. So the, the people that do see the social media coming in from from maybe the West talking about you know mental health and eating disorders, they're the ones who need the help but can't find someone else to to share mm. um, their, their experiences with. I think. Yeah, that's such a good point. Actually, I was speaking to this um, with somebody the other day and that a lot of the time I think at the moment what we're tending to do is to be kind of you know oh we want to raise awareness and you know if you have an issue then make sure you talk to somebody but that's about as far as it goes and then there isn't actually you know after that there isn't then somebody to actually go and talk to about it um, which you know I think that's sort of the the breaking point and the barrier that we have at the moment you know in, in the west for for sure um, I'm kind of interested, so if, if someone did, you know, or was struggling with, with their mental health, are there professionals in Singapore that kind of work within mental health or is that not not something that's available? Okay, there are. You could go to therapists, you know, or psychiatrists and all that. But um, if you go to see like a private um, psychologist or psychiatrist, it can be quite expensive. Okay. And if you go to the public ones, then you go to, like, it's called the Institute of Mental Health. Mm-hmm. And there still is some stigma attached to that. Mm-hmm. Because I think people have this um, idea that if, if you go to the Institute of Mental Health, it can affect your employment or how people wow. will see you and things like that. I'm not sure how true that is because mm-hmm. I know people who've been to the Institute of Mental Health to seek help. And, you know, they're doing really well career-wise. So I think that that um, mindset's a bit old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it could hold weight because I, I personally don't know um, 
Yeah. If 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 that that worry holds any water. Yeah, which I suppose you know, if you've got that concern of you know, if I speak about my mental health or get support, that's going to affect my career. That in itself is quite stress-inducing, quite anxiety-provoking. So I can imagine, you know, what it it would make things worse, but then also make you even less likely to reach out for support. So that sounds like a really difficult situation to navigate. Um, yeah. And also, you know, you mentioned that a lot of your friends maybe don't share things about their mental health. So I can imagine that on top, you know, not even having people around you that you could sort of speak to and, and understand, I can imagine being quite difficult. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I think what really, what really helps is... Okay, this is a strange thought, right? Because like what re- really helps is, you know, um, having someone open up to you, but obviously no one's going to open up to you if you don't mm-hmm. open up to them. Mm-hmm. So I think what really needs to happen is you just, it's hard, it's hard to tell someone to do this as well, but what I found has helped me the, the most is um, opening up to people and then making them feel comfortable enough to share mm-hmm. with me. Yeah, then then you don't feel so alone in your struggle in in a society that that stigmatizes this form of struggle. Yeah. Definitely. Well, and I can imagine, you know, you you yourself have described your difficulties and I'm 100% sure that you're not alone in that. So I can imagine that there'll be a lot of other people, but like you said, that haven't had somebody disclose something with them. Um, And, you know, that's often the reason why I'm so open and vocal on the podcast, because it's that hope that if I share something then it makes other people think, oh, they've shared. So, you know, one, it can't be that bad if I share it, but two, like I now feel comfortable to, especially when you're in, you know, like a group of friends or whatever, if somebody shares what they're going through, like you said, it does create that more comfortable environment. And I think it's quite a um, trust building process as well, because you've trusted them with the things that you're struggling with. So you're, you know, they can then trust you as well, because it's not like you're going to go and judge them or whatever because of what they've told you after you telling them. Do you think that eating disorders in Singapore present in the, in the same way as in the West? Or is there like a an eating disorder that's more common? Um, or is it kind of, you just completely don't know because people just don't really share that sort of thing? Because I've got like a very small demographic of people I know who mm. have eating disorders. And so it's literally like, I think I've got like one friend with anorexia, one mm. friend with bulimia, one mm-hmm. friend with eating disorder okay and it's not on purpose i didn't go out and look for like one of each <laughs> I, it just happened to be that way yeah but that's i think that's really interesting because um when i so basically the reason i asked was when i was at uni um and i did my masters in eating disorders there were um quite a lot of students that had come from from china and the lecturer said to them you know do you have eating disorders in asia um and they were like, well, we don't really know because, you know, people don't really talk about it and, you know, not really aware. Um, and so he was very interested as into, you know, how how do you know about them if you don't have, well, if you haven't seen them in your in your country? Because, like, you know, basically saying, like, why, not why are you here, but, like, what interested you to the course? Um, but I think that's really interesting if, if the friends that you know 
do have a very similar presentation um, because I think often we talk about, you know, there's lots of different causes of eating disorders, but the environment can be one of them. And it does sound like the environment that you're in is quite different maybe to being in the West. But the fact that the same eating disorders are presenting, I don't know, just says to me like there's a lot more than just the environment that we're in. Um, if the environments are different, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, I'd say, one thing I'd say is, I think, I think, um, anorexia in a way is almost normalized, mm. um, amongst like a certain demographic okay. because I've, I've like in, in like my secondary school days and, and, and all that, like you'd see girls talk about actively skipping meals mm. you know choosing not to eat so much and then talking about their bodies um in quite an unhealthy way um i wouldn't call that i wouldn't say like anorexia is normalized i would say maybe like disordered eating or eating less in quite a, an unhealthy way mm. is quite normalized here mm. So I think there could honestly be quite a lot of people who do have like anything this old and just don't realize it. Mm. And I think that proportion, like that percentage of people could be higher in Singapore than, than in the West. Mm. Yeah, I guess, you know, from what you were saying before about, I guess, the ideal body type and stuff that <laughs> I don't want to say that there's like people look a certain way when they have an eating disorder but for anorexia maybe it might be that people you know if you're not talking about mental health being a low weight is normalized and there's not that education around it like you say I, I would say that you know could potentially mean that more people are struggling with an eating disorder but not maybe realizing that it's an issue or not knowing where to go or you know um kind of like you said at the start just kind of not even realizing that it's a thing um until somebody else maybe says so yeah that's quite interesting to think about maybe the normalization in society um and then getting you know support and a diagnosis maybe is less common because of that cool now that's really interesting to know um so i guess just to finish off um what do you think that needs to change in singapore in order for mental health and eating disorders you know in particular to become a more acceptable topic do you think that is there a shift is it happening or do you think it's still something that you know you really need to kind of work out how it's going to happen i mean there's definitely a shift um mm. i'm quite optimistic because recently <laughs> the government has been talking about mental health mm. and i think you know the government is it's made up of like an older generation and not not to age shame people but i do find that um they that older people didn't grow up with uh healthy discourses around mental health and it might be mm. harder for them to understand what what it what it is and and what a good healthy mental health campaign looks like mm. so when I first saw the little adverts at the bus stops, I was like, I was disappointed. But then as I thought about it, I was like, no, you know what, there is an effort and 
were mm. headed in the right direction. Like they might not, the execution might not have been, you know, to the standard that I was expecting. But I can't expect their first attempt to be, you know, amazing. So I, I do hope that that this mental health awareness expands to eating disorder awareness as well. And with that, you know, campaign and that social movement, hopefully that. It not only empowers more people to talk about their experiences, but also to share with their older relatives, like, hey, mm. maybe some of the things you're saying to me, um, and, and you're probably saying to other people as well, have an impact on people's lives that you don't realize. Mm. Opening up these, di- like empowering people to open up these, these discourses with the people in their lives. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, yeah, I guess you can't expect the first time something happens for it to be perfect. But the, like you said, the fact that it's starting is a really good yeah. sign. Um, and I like that idea as well of kind of, you know, maybe the people that are more aware of mental health and have the access to social media and things like that for them to pass on that knowledge to the older generation. Um, you know, I think that could be a really great thing to happen but do you think that conversation would be quite difficult to have um if the older generation are very unaware of mental health and stuff to actually how would you say to somebody no I actually don't appreciate that comment or you know have you considered how that makes someone feel that in particular is very difficult in um in a society that's so traditional and that's majority Chinese because in Chinese culture, respect for your elders mm. is a massive thing. Um, and for me to contradict someone older than me is seen as rude and disrespectful, um, a lot more so than in the West. Mm. And I, I feel a lot of... Um, there, there's a huge culture shock when when people from, from like the UK come to Singapore and... Well, and the other way around. Right, so um, when Lara first met my parents, mm. she didn't realize that you cannot call them by their first name. Okay. Like, that is super rude. Like, when I see my, my friend's parents, I am not allowed to refer to them by their first name. You have to call them, like, auntie or uncle. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's the same in, um, oh, which culture is that? Like Indian culture, I think is the same. We mm-hmm. call them auntie and uncle. You, yeah. you, you can't refer to them by their first name. And so, um, having such a age hierarchical society, it does make it difficult for for the younger generation to change the minds of the older generation. Mm. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I, I can imagine that's very difficult. Um, but I suppose within that, you know, you can have conversations where you don't necessarily contradict, um, but you can maybe just have an open discussion maybe of, you know, this is kind of my perspective. Would that be a possible thing? Or is that still kind of too much kind of telling the older generation they're wrong? Because um, I'm just thinking about like, if I have... A conversation with my grandparents you know if I don't know they're talking about something that's kind of sexist or, or racist or whatever I never used to but I think now I'm a bit older I have the confidence to be like you can't say that um 
and you know I will explain why you can't say that and they're a bit like well god the youth of today but I don't know whether they take it on board by at least try is that kind of too too far even to say you know actually I don't agree with that because of x y and z I think the older you get the easier it is to have that discourse because mm-hmm. you're they start to respect you more as a person right. it's, it's quite sad to say but when you're younger people just look at you like you don't know anything because you haven't lived life uh-huh i think that's universal i don't think that's just like yeah, a, a Singaporean definitely. thing. um so you know when i was younger trying to have these conversations was really hard as i grew older and you know um i've shown myself to be smarter than a lot of the older people i'm talking to and you know like out like debating them and, and outclassing them intellectually sometimes <laughs> um they, they start to realize like okay yeah yeah sean's got a point and if you mm-hmm. don't agree with him he's going to he's not going to stop talking so let's just nod <laughs> <laughs> i yeah, like that so i don't know whether or not they're actually agreeing with me because they they see the the they, they see the you know that my argument holds holds merit or if they just want me to shut up but at least <laughs> they're listening yeah yeah that is very true yeah sometimes I'm like that um with with Ben I'll be like oh I I don't know what I'm supposed to I don't agree with this but I don't know what I'm gonna say so I'm just gonna nod um but yeah um I think you know hopefully there's a little bit of movement there and like you said as you get older um maybe have those conversations a bit more I think that's I think from what I'm sensing is it's like our generation bringing in the change, not necessarily changing the older generation, but it sounds like there's sort of recognition coming through. Um, so, you know, hopefully that sort of movement um, happens as as we go, get older. Um, but I think there's always things, isn't there, that I always have this conversation with Ben and like what, when we're older, is going to be a backwards way of thinking that our grandchildren will be like, I cannot believe that you think that. Um, I think about this all the time as well. Yeah. I'm just trying to think, like, what am I holding on to so dearly that I couldn't listen to my kids about? <laughs> yeah, but there'll definitely be something um, yeah. because it's, it won't be what we're used to and it'll be that, you know, the youthful generation and their their um, ideas and stuff. So, yeah, there absolutely will be something. Well, Sean, thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been so interesting to kind of talk to you about all the cultural differences and everything. So, yeah, and lovely to catch up with you as well because it's been far too long. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And um, next time I'm back in the UK, I definitely need to see you. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support or talk to someone you trust.